Welcome back to the TradQuest Podcast. I'm your host, James Orr, and joining me as always, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, Bob? Much, buddy. How you doing today? Oh, uh, man, I'm doing excellent. Just been getting my fair share of mountain biking in, try, playing uh, stupid games, but not winning any stupid prizes. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, we've got uh, a new single track that uh, our county built in the Coos County Forest, it's like a elk trail through the tight, thick coastal rainbrush, and it's got a lot of berms. It's really fast, and it's pretty rewarding. Like for every time you have to bomb down a hill, you'll climb, and every time you climb, you get rewarded with another downhill. And I'm getting my cardio on. That's for sure. Right on, man. Yeah, what's going on up there in the big city? How much? Just uh. Working, not sleeping much, moving, moving, all that good stuff, yeah. Must be relieved to not be building uh, wood floors anymore. Yeah, yeah, done with the remodel. I, I don't know if I said this on the podcast. The unfortunate thing is I was, I had my brother over helping me move some stuff, and I was, I had to go up in the attic and wire up my range. It was like the last connection I had to make, you know. House is all painted, just beautiful, just starting to just, you know, move a few things in. And I, and some ratty plumber, which wasn't me this time, but he had a little brace up there for the vent. And I, <laughs> I stepped on that thing and slipped, and my foot just spidered the ceiling of the kitchen. And oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I got to get that all redone now or redo it andy came over to look at it and i think he can help me out a little bit with the mudding and all that stuff probably try it next week so yeah that was kind of depressing <laughs> but uh, i've been at work the night before we got up a bunch i was super tired had a, a million things going on and you know i was just a little clumsy and whoop, went right through the ceiling it was awesome foot through the drywall huh yep and it was right in a seam so it just spidered out you know like three or four feet is like oh anyway so yeah that's Jeez. that's what i got going on man nothing just uh so at the at the fire hall you guys probably do a lot of uh working out and cardio stuff there huh yeah oh yeah we try to work out every day and for sure some days we get too busy um right now we're doing inspection work so we don't really have time once once a year we kind of really clean everything call it our inspection work and the old chief comes out with a white glove and makes sure everything's all perfect so we spend uh, i don't know six or seven shifts doing that every year so we're kind of in that so we miss out on our workouts a little bit but yeah we got a little gym set up in there and treadmills and all that we we try to do circuits mostly um you know the guys on my shift we usually try to get get in a little circuit every day if we can and yeah yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I went on a 
put on my new Kafaro backpack the other day and I put a bunch of weight in it and went hiking around and um, it's pretty awesome just trying to you know get back into the having the weight on my back and I've been doing uh, actually yoga twice a week which is kind of new for me and uh, almost kind of sounds crazy but I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast and he's a big proponent of yoga and so I thought the gym I work out at offers the class so uh, it's great. I mean, I feel like my mobility is getting better, and um, it's, yeah, yoga is great, man. I, I I don't think there's a better thing you could do, especially when you start to get a little older like us, and everything's sore and not stretched out. You know, you do yeah. some of those yoga poses, and you're like, ah, that hurts. Like, well, I haven't stretched that in you know 15 years. Like, no wonder. So, um, yeah. And uh, that hot yoga, I think that's what Joe Rogan's doing now, but my sister has been into that for years, and I go with her every once in a while. I haven't been in a long time, but, man, I feel great after doing those. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I mean, anything, it's all in the name of elk hunting, right? That's uh, right. The yoga, the cardio, even the bicycling, you know, uh, I – as a young younger guy, I would be charging on that bike a lot harder, but it's always uh, right there, you know, in between my ears. Like, don't crash, don't ruin your elk season. Um, you know, take it easy. You don't need to beat the next guy. Uh, all I can think about is September at this point. It's it's still so far away, but I, I I can I can smell it already. Do you have one of those electric mountain bikes so you can pass people and that's, <laughs> and laugh that's, at them? That's cheating, Bob. <laughs> I'd have one of those electric ones that I'd be buzzing by. Um, I have some guys that ride into work, you know, and uh, they'll have those guys pass. And when they first started coming out, you know, I remember they'd be like riding, you know, hard. And this guy just comes flying by them, you know, like in blue jeans and a T-shirt. And they got all their biker gear on, you know. And they're like, what the heck? He had to have that electric assist thing. This is crap. You know, they get all fired up. So Yeah, I pulled into the parking lot, and there's this uh, pretty overweight gentleman, and he had, like, all these clothes on. And he was like, yeah, I'm just having so much fun. you got to try this electric bike out. And I was like, oh, I'm good. And he talked me into it. So I hopped on this $7,000 specialized cheater bike. And I'm not going to lie, it it was fun. Like... <laughs> It, it no, was we like, we rented them one year a few years ago. My brother and I we cheated and to ride them into our tree stands because it's so hot there in the desert. And it was pretty cheap. We got a really cheap rental through a place in Portland. But even then, it was like it's just you know spending too much money. So last year, I rode. I got one of my nephews like <laughs> from when he was like twelve. His little BMXs. And I ripped that thing in and out of there. I should have took some pictures. It was pretty sweet, but it worked. It worked good. But yeah, they are handy, man, and they are kind of fun. I, the nice thing was, like, the way back at night. You know, like you could be back to the truck that's three miles away in like five minutes. You just yeah, well, cruising out. I, I was telling my friends because they're getting pretty popular that here in the next couple of years that we're going to be considered traditional mountain bikers well like you can all the all the guys are gonna have have they're all gonna have electric bikes and then the guys that are riding actual bicycles we're gonna be traditional bike riders <laughs> you know i'm a traditional mountain biker because i still pedal my bike and yeah. now the the modern 
mountain bikers have electric motors. And so I, I don't know. It kind of pisses me off. Um, I was actually seven miles behind a gate and some guy came flying by on an electric bike. And I was like, well, that thing still has a motor and it says no motorized vehicles. It, it, it actually kind of irked me. It was like, really? Like, um, well, they're allowed, they're allowed if they're under, under 750 Watts, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I think they in, should be most not states. allowed. Yeah, I agree. If it's a no motorized vehicles, but that's right now. That's why they're so popular, and that's why it's kind of they're slipping through the cracks. A lot of those places that are no motorized vehicles, a lot of the gated logging access. I know where you are. I think up northern Idaho, northwest Montana. Don't quote me. I don't know the rules for sure. I mean, I know I have a buddy who hunts up there every year, and. Northern Idaho, and that's what he said. He said if it's like 700 watts or something, um, if it's less than that, you can use them. Um, well, so yeah, that'll, a, that'll be an issue down the road someday, I'm sure. But. Yeah, call me a traditionalist, but I'm just going to use the quads God gave me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who do we got on tonight, Bob? Uh, well, we have our first female guest of the podcast. Yeah, um, and I'm pretty excited about it because she's not your average female. No, no, she is a badass. And uh, we had her husband on last week or maybe this week whenever we air him. And so we decided we'll follow it up with Connie. And Connie is, I mean, we you'll hear on the podcast, she is an extraordinary woman to say the least. Yeah, I mean, no offense to... Uh, any gals out there. Um, but you know, there's, I have three daughters, Bob's got a daughter. We could only hope that we could raise one of our daughters to, uh, be, a, a, an outdoor, um, hunter like Connie. Um, she's not, you know, this gal that's getting, uh, walked to her tree stand or by her husband with her, her hand being held or, or uh, being told, uh, you know, where to go or how to do it. Um, she's she's the real deal. She's getting out there and and uh, getting it done in the elk woods and the deer woods, and uh, she's got her own skill set. And sounds like she's a crack shot because every time she mentions making a shot, she's like, "Yep, it was a perfect shot." Uh, <laughs> So uh, it's she's impressive. Uh, we're super excited to have had her on, and like her husband, I mean, they are just the salt of the earth, and we definitely look forward to getting them back on. For sure, great people. Yeah. So Connie Renfro, enjoy. Welcome to the Trag Quest podcast, Connie Renfro. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited. You're. Uh, First female bow hunter on the podcast. We're excited to have you. That's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So tell tell us uh, tell us a little bit about you. Are you from Colorado? And how did speaking of crazy, how did you uh, hook up with uh, Mister Gary? Yeah. So, oh boy. So I am a Colorado native. I'm a fifth generation Clear Creek County. In Colorado, uh, my family came, well, my mom's side came in the 1860s to work in the mines. They came from Cornwall. And my dad's side, I don't know, they've been around here a long time, but we're not, we don't have as much history on his side. And uh, so, yeah, I grew up here, 
very um, outdoorsy family, but not a hunting family. Nobody hunts, so they think I'm a little strange, and uh, that's okay. They all like to feast on the things that we get, so that works out good for me. But, uh, yeah, so grew up here, like I said, outdoorsy family, pretty pretty bad tomboy. Um, grew up riding horses and hiking and fishing and backpacking and camping and all those crazy things, but uh, met Gary when I was 20, I guess, and uh, he, he'd he been through some rough patches with women and wasn't about to get involved with anyone again, and he uh, had a couple kids from his first marriage, and I met those kids, they were about 8 and 10, I guess, and fell in love with his kids, and that kind of just spurred things along, and all of a sudden he decided maybe he'd give give marriage another chance. It took a while, but yeah, so we've been together 31 years. It's crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. So did he put a bow in your hand and make sure that uh, that was going to work out before he uh, committed? Or No, he he actually kind of fought me. So I grew up shooting bows. My dad is an avid archer, but he's never hunted with a bow. He's not a hunter. So we all grew up shooting just the little play bows, you know, nothing serious. But everybody grew up doing it. And then when I met Gary, I was like, I didn't even know about bow hunting. I knew nothing. Never hunted anything in my life. Shotguns and stuff with my family. But, yeah, it was a whole new world. And I I was pretty intrigued. And he was absolutely refusing to let me be a part of it because he just figured that I was only doing that because because I wanted to be his girlfriend, you know. So he he didn't really want to share. And I finally finally uh, compelled him that I was serious and wanted to wanted to try this so he finally bought me a little junker old junker compound it was a black bear and uh, didn't really know how to shoot it and it had a couple sight pins I didn't know how to use but I started flinging some arrows again and having fun with that and he decided he went back to his roots because he grew up on a recurve and longbow and then he had switched to compound in the 70s when everybody kind of went that way, or well, most everybody, and uh, he wanted to go back to his roots, so he ordered a custom Pitsley Predator recurve, and as soon as he got that bow, I, my eyes were green with envy. I wanted one so bad. Couldn't stand it. They're just, there's something magical about the wood bows, so finally he ordered me one, and yeah, the rest is kind of history. Never looked back. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, did you, did you have to work your way up in poundage to get into hunting weight or? Um, not so much. So I am one of those fortunate or unfortunate, I'm not sure which it is, but the girls in my family are genetically pretty strong. So I didn't, I was pretty strong and kind of started off at a pretty, pretty heavy weight. My compound was a 60 pound with a 50% let off and then when I switched over, my first first traditional bow was a 55 at 28, so of course I don't draw 28, so, you know, somewhere in the 40s is what it ends up at, but yeah, I've shot uh, fairly, fairly heavy bows all of my, all of my years, but uh, getting older, we're starting to buy weaker limbs, because it gets harder on your shoulders, so you can, you need to shoot what you can effectively shoot, I guess. Awesome. And so are have you uh are you shooting um wood arrows also? Did you start with those or 
I started, well, that was a battle, honestly. When I first started, because I was shooting such a heavier weight bow, we had a terrible time finding arrows for my draw length because it was something about that heavy weight with a shorter arrow just battled it. And so I originally was shooting some Easton aluminums, and when I switched over to the recurve, we finally started getting into some wood arrows that flew for me, and now I'm shooting the footed arrows, and they, they're unbelievable. There's nothing like it. Oh, that's so, yeah, awesome. We, we build all our own all our own arrows, and I like to do the the feather splicing. That's my specialty. So. Yeah, that's I remember we saw we saw the feather splicing um, seminar you put on at the TAO banquet last winter. It was pretty cool. Oh yeah, it's fun. It's addicting. I mean, it's time consuming, but it's you can go as crazy with it as you want, or or as simple as you want. But it really to me, it makes it pretty unique, and I don't know that you know how it is with traditional stuff. It's every little bit of it is so personal, and so it, I just I enjoy doing that, and I it makes it each set of arrows is unique, and I, I tend to save one out of every dozen that I do. That's just for show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, how did the uh, hunting begin for you? Once you got the bow in your hand, and I mean you're in the right country, and yeah, definitely in the right country. Very fortunate. Lots of lots of opportunity. I am um, my first year. I shot a couple ptarmigan. That was it, and I was pretty happy about that. I'd never never shot anything, so I was pretty tickled to get ptarmigan. I have a great old picture of it with my junker compound and some cast off like Vietnam era camo that I got from Gary that didn't fit and whatever, you know, I didn't have to have all the fancy stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I just, just kept after it. And I, I shot with that old compound. I shot a little mule deer buck and that was, that was pretty neat. I, I tend to, I get frustrated and I especially got frustrated when I was new to the sport because I, a little bit competitive, I guess. I want to be good at things. I don't like not succeeding at things. Not that taking an animal is the success part, but I just wanted to be good at it. I wanted to know that I was I was good, you know. And so I'd get to the end of seasons, and I'd be kicking rocks because nothing was happening. And, and that one, the year I shot that little mule deer buck, I'd pretty much written off the season. I was going to have to go back to work. I used to work for the airlines, so I was always on the road. And I had one more day that I could have gone and it snowed about a foot that night and I just thought I'm not going and then our friend Mark he's like gets on the phone he's like get out of bed you gotta go this is your last chance you gotta get out of bed and go and I was just kicking rocks and Gary was going to take a friend out and help him because he had a muzzleloader tag and it was muzzleloader season so I finally decided to scrape my butt out of bed and get going and they dropped me off in a valley because we saw some little bucks out there and I thought well I'll give it a shot, you know. So it was a foot of snow. It's kind of a little bit loud, but it was funny because it was really nasty up high, just blow and just howling wind and crusty snow and terrible conditions. But down lower, well, I say lower, 10,000 feet, <laughs> it was starting to melt a little bit. So these big, giant plops of snow were coming off the trees. So it was kind of masking me trying to sneak up on these deer. And Gary and his friend Bill had gone on up the hill. And I just kept kept going and lo and behold this little buck comes walking right out in front of me and you know this was my first animal and I thought well he's only like 12 yards away and still didn't know how to shoot those sight pins I never did use them I just 
shot it instinctive with just whatever. And that buck stepped out, and I shot him in 12 ring, and it was he was down in 50 yards, and I was so excited. <laughs> I could not believe it. I went and stood by the road waiting for Gary and Billy to come back down the hill, and they came back down. They're looking at me, and I'm like, I, I shot him. I got him. It's a good hit. I got him. <laughs> and so we went and tracked him, and it looked like a crime scene because with all that snow, and he it was double lung, and he was just spraying. And so it was it was quite something for my first first animal. That's awesome. It's, it's nice to have your first one uh, go so smooth. Yeah, and actually, I think I'm lying. I think, boy, it's been a long time. My memory's failing me because I think the very th- first thing I shot was an antelope doe. Yep, that was the very first thing. The deer was the second, but the antelope doe, same thing. So we're hunting in a pit blind, and I, you know, pretty clueless still, first thing. Finally, get it. I missed more times than anything, and I never hit any of them bad, which was good because you don't want to start off that way kind of sours you when you're a new hunter and uh finally got a good shot on this doe and i thought i missed because it just zipped her and gary's like you got her you got her and i'm i thought no i didn't I'm, i completely missed her and she went about she didn't even run she walked like 15 feet and then keeled over and i yeah it's pretty amazing when it works right yeah that's that's awesome so you're you've got two animals down and i know we're uh I know you hold the Colorado uh, Big Gate. Are you the first woman to do that? or? Yeah, first woman. And uh, the only thing I'd like to like to continue on that is that I would love to get a nice big muley with my longbow, and I need another lion with a traditional bow because I shot my lion with, a, with that old junker compound. That was the last thing I shot with it. And then I put it away, and I've never never gone back. I'll never go back. Yeah, that's There's awesome. Nothing, nothing that compares to the to wood bows. I've shot recurve longbow. I've made my own self bow. Shot deer with it, and yeah, I'll never go back. So, what's uh, what's your favorite species to hunt? Uh, I used to say whatever I can get a license for. Um, <laughs> it's getting harder and harder to draw things. Um, boy, that's tough. You know, they're all different. I. I had an incredible goat hunt, and I, I'm due someday to draw again. It's been 23 years, I think, since I got to hunt goats, and that was amazing. We backpacked in and, and had an incredible hunt, got a nice billy. Sheep, yeah. I mean, yeah, how can you pass up bighorn sheep hunting? But same thing, it's so tough to draw. I drew my ram tag in 2002, so it's, it's a long time. Yeah, we'd love to hear some of those those stories. Yeah, the sheep, that was that was pretty spectacular. That was my last species to get the big eight. And I never, like we got, I had six species already taken, and and then we, and we weren't even paying any attention to that. And all of a sudden Gary was like, you only need two more things to get the big eight. That's pretty incredible. And I thought, yeah, well, it'll never happen because I needed a bear and a sheep. You know, those are pretty tough here. Um you know, bears you can't can't bait or use hounds here, so it makes it more of a challenge, which is not a bad thing. But uh, we used to run bear baits, and that was fun. We had a good time. You get to get to see a lot of activity. But uh, times have changed. So yeah, we came down to that, and Gary's like, "Well, let's give it a shot." So we spent 
three and a half weeks hunting bears on the western slope of Colorado, and it was a really, really tough hunt. And I had one chance at one bear, and it made a good hit and got a real, real pretty bear. Not a big bear, but he was a nice one. And then, then I was down to sheep, and I drew a tag. And unfortunately, that spring I had to have a hernia fixed, which is not fun. Couldn't shoot or do anything for a while. It takes a couple months before you start feeling human again. And uh, I just went all out and got in great shape and shot every single day and shot from every angle I could possibly conceive of and would run we would we would run around our little range and and then sneak up on the targets and you know while you're out of breath and try to shoot and just whatever you can do to get mentally prepared and and it worked because when I finally had a shot at at a ram it everything just clicked it was perfect it was, couldn't have been a better hit and so those you know that I always say you got to prepare and persevere and a little patience. <laughs> was the uh, was the ram in the um, high country? Did you guys have to backpack in for that hunt, or we didn't because we live right in the middle of a sheep unit, so we were just you know can hunt out of the house, which is pretty nice because S thirty two borders where we live. So okay, it's, uh, yeah, that was yeah. There's other places I would like to hunt sheep, but it where you do backpack in but it's it's hard to pass it up when it's right out your front door yeah marv marv clinky i was talking to him on the phone the other night and he said that uh gary grew up in that country where you guys are at and he said that you guys uh hunt uh some areas that he grew up hunting and he he thought that uh he had that place to himself and he said get get to um talking with gary and Gary kind of thought him and his old man had that place to himself, yet they were hunting the same drainages, just yeah, kind of missing each other. Yeah, there's uh, there's some of that old school areas here, but, you know, it's pretty, times always are changing, and it's not the same anymore. We we don't hunt around here anymore except for sheep because it's just overrun with people. It's too close to Denver, and there's, yeah, it's, sort of spoils it. We like to go where we don't ever see another human being, so that's getting harder and harder to do. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah we do We do have Bob the Bowhunter Borland on here. He's a little shy when it I'm comes here. to women, but <laughs> we do have him. Well, that's okay. I'm, I'm a little bit shy, too, so <laughs> life has forced me out of my shell. You can't. Uh, you can't work for the airlines, and you can't I'm an MRI tech now, so you have to deal with people every second of every day. So you just can't, you have to somehow conquer that. But given my choice, I'm usually the one that just sits there and watches everybody else talk. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So it sounds like uh, elk hunting, I mean, Colorado, right? Like that's, you guys are kind of known for your elk hunting and I've enjoyed some of your, um, elk hunting adventures maybe we can uh, get into the elk and and yeah, talk a little bit were, about that. that was a tough one for me elk geez i when i first started gary told me he says it's going to take you seven years to kill an elk and i i just laughed i'm like you're kidding me it's not going to take me seven years what are you saying and i did end up proving him wrong it took me eight years to get my first elk <laughs> <laughs> they're tough i mean that's it's tough, and 
I just, you know, like I said before, I didn't grow up hunting. So learning, especially bow hunting, I'm sure I've never rifle hunted, but I'm sure it's the same. But with bow hunting, it's you're so up close and in their face. If you don't recognize, we always call it the window of opportunity, but it's true. I mean, if you don't recognize that that's your, that's your chance right there, that's it, and you let it pass you by, and then, and then it's gone. It's over, they're gone, they blow, whatever, they wind you. And I didn't, for a long time, I struggled with knowing when my window was, especially with elk. I mean, that mule deer, just that worked out perfectly. The antelope, you know, in a blind's a little different, still nerve-wracking. But, boy, with elk, it was hard for me to to know when to say when. This is it. This is not going to get any better than right now. And I blew so many chances, and I've blown so many chances on every critter, but when I was new to the sport, I had big muleys all around me at 20 yards, and I was just frozen in my tracks. I didn't know what to do. There was too many choices, and which one was going to be the right one to try to take a shot at, and I just I just literally stood there until they ran away, and Gary was out of his mind because he grew up hunting. He He's done this his entire life, so... He knows, but he finally, with elk, we battled and battled, and I blew more chances on big bulls. I mean, these are hard-earned in the high country. They do not come easy. I had one nice six-point. He's going to go through a rock slide, and they don't cross rock slides typically because they can't move too fast in them. And we were down below him, and Gary's like, get up there and get a shot. Or, you know, go right to this side, and he's like, and then that'll be your shot, you know, so... I scooted up there to the edge of the bottom of that thing, and that bull comes walking out, and I literally just froze in my tracks because I thought maybe he'd get a little closer or maybe the angle would be a little bit different, Or and I just stood there. And finally they blew out of there, and Gary was furious because he, <laughs> he didn't understand what was happening. And then after we had a little spat on the side of a mountain and I threw my boot at his head, um, he finally figured out that I just wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't getting it. I wasn't figuring out that that was your last chance right there. That was it. So I think that that comes with experience. You know, you have to you have to spend a lot of days in the field and have a lot of animals in front of you before you start to it starts to click that you know that this is it. It's not going to get any better. And you either take the shot or you pass it, you know. That was that's a hard lesson for me and for elk when I finally did shoot it was just a little spike, but I, this is after I've blown all these chances of big bulls, and I finally, the spike is coming, and spikes aren't usually very bright because they're young and inexperienced, and there are two spikes coming, and we got, we're kind of in the high timber, so there's still a little bit of cover, and they're coming through, and Gary's like, okay, he's going to walk right there, okay, okay, you know, and he stops, this spike stops with this giant boulder in front of his body, and so I can see the top of his back and his where his spine would be, but I can't see his vitals. And he's just standing there, and Gary's like, shoot. And I'm like, no, I can't see. You know, but it was just, it, it was just that right parabolic arrow flight that would drop it right over that rock, right into the vitals, and I was just beside myself because I didn't want to shoot because I couldn't see the vitals. And finally I just thought, okay, so I... Had a recurve, drew back my recurve, and shot that spike, and it was perfect. And Gary's like, "Finally, she finally got it." <laughs> it's hard for you know, it was hard for him because he was putting aside 
his hunting to kind of let me try, and I was such a rookie that I blew more chances than any human should possibly have, but that's how you learn. Yeah, like yeah. you said, the time in the field. I know me from switching to a compound or from a compound to a recurve, I had the same issues, especially on the elk. The elk was the hardest. I mean, you're used to drawing back at a certain time. You know, they walk in the lane, you shoot, and I don't know. I mean, same thing. I'd switch back and forth. You know, I'd hunt with my recurve, and then I'd screw up a bunch of chances that year, not get anything, and then I'd go back to my compound, and then I'd kill something, and then I'd go back. And it took me, I think, 10 years of switching back and forth. I mean, from 18 to, you know, all those odd years of just trying to – and it's hard to explain to people. I think that's – I've asked, you know – people that are very successful and it's it's a hard thing to explain like you said it's it's knowing when when that opportunity is and it's not not anything you can really just tell somebody you know no you just have to in your brain it has to click that that it's this is it. it's not going to get any better and it it took me years and i i didn't ever go back to the compound because I I didn't really have much success with that compound. I didn't like it, for one thing, so it didn't intrigue me at all. So I just, I wasn't sorry to be switching away from that, but it it was just the hunting part of it, you know, not growing up doing that, not knowing. There's just so much to learn, and it's like you said, you can't tell someone. It's something they have to figure out. And I know some of Gary's buddies, they were a little skeptical when I was still a rookie and I was up in Canada hunting bears and, there was nine of us in camp, and everyone else was experienced hunters, and I was still pretty new to it. And I made a poor shot and lost a bear, and I was crushed, just devastated. But you guys know, if you hunt long enough, unless you never shoot, it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. You get a bad shot. And, yeah. and so it was funny because one of Gary's oldest buddies, who was just a phenomenal recurve shooter, he and his wife both, they won all kinds of tournaments and they both hunted. And Randy was like, I don't think she's ever going to hunt again. And Gary was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, she will. And I moped all the way home. It was 26 hours in the car and I just struggled with it. And then I thought, nope, I can't, I'm addicted. I can't stop. I will just, I'll just get better. And I'll do better the next time. And so sometimes, you know, you you do, you know, us women, we're pretty emotional, right? So <laughs> you uh, you have to be able to overcome those difficult times when things don't go like you planned. Yeah, definitely. I, I can totally relate to that, um, that timing thing with elk. Uh, it's... It, I've had I've struggled with that too. Like Bob said, you know, with the compound, you just you hear them coming when you're calling them, and and you can just set yourself up. But with the stick bow, they come in, and you see that opportunity, and then like you say, you wait for this other opportunity, and you just realize that 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 was it. Like you just let the the opportunity just go by you, and now they're keyed on to you. They're moving into your wind. It took yeah, me a long time. Or they're long... already they've they've pegged you and you start to draw and they turn inside out and it's over. That yeah, that's it right there. And I, I, I mean I have had that happen forty, thirty times. I mean I couldn't tell you how many times I w- I should have shot them at twenty when they stood and, and turned their head 
And then the next thing I know, I've got them at eight yards, and they're and they're pretty much staring at me. And then I put yeah. tension on the string, and <laughs> off they go. Yeah, all you gotta do is bat your eyelashes at that point, and they got you in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's tough um, for do. sure. They do know every tree and every rock in their territory. I swear. So even when you think you're perfectly camoed in, you're not. And they they pinpoint when calling elk. They just they have you they have it pin pa- uh, pinpointed to that exact location. So. Once they, uh, you know, kind of, they kind of are like surveying the area and they're like, okay, it came from right there. And they're like, what is that person? What is that thing where that sound came from? Cause that's, does not look like an elk and yeah, it's over at that point. Yeah. That's why we generally, I think Gary might've mentioned, but we don't call much, especially here. They're a little call shy right around here. There's so much pressure, but we don't as a rule, very rarely call sometimes maybe a cow calls sometimes a bugle to locate but basically we keep mum and just would much rather catch them coming into the timber or whatever and ambush them but but yeah they'll they'll track you down they'll they'll bust you before you ever see them you're doing a lot of spot and stock like um you're getting visual on a lot of these uh elk first right or yeah we tend to hunt timberline and up so yeah we, yeah, we would much prefer spot and stock. It's you know around here that's kind of the name of the game. So in you know timber hunting, some people are really good at it. Neither one of us is good at it. We we're not. We'd rather be moving and be able to make a plan and you know okay this is where they're going to come down or whatever and catch them coming back in. It's moving through the timber 99 out of 100 times or worse you're going to lose. You just you can't uh, compete with their senses. Yeah, you wouldn't like hunting where I where, where I'm in the jungle. It's yeah, <laughs> it, it, it you can't see uh, ten yards in front of you. You more can just hear them. So that's kind of yeah, what calling so is the game. I mean, you have no choice. You've got to change your change yeah. your hunting methods and right. Yeah, so there's a uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just it's just different country in that you know here that works well for us where you guys are at. That wouldn't work at all. So yeah. So there's a picture that's kind of, I think, kind of popular that's been floating around online for some time, and it's of you with a six-point bull, like in some sagebrush in the background. Um, one of my, it's one of my favorite photos. Could you tell us the story of that bull? Yeah, so that was, that, for me, that'll probably be my lifetime bull, and he's not a giant. It's a good picture. It, he's, well, I don't even know what he ended up at. I think he grossed like 320 or something. So it was a nice bull. But uh, so he's we, um, just, just a 320 bull. <laughs> well, trust me, when you draw one of those coveted units, you start to go, oh, it's only a 300 because your, your perspective changes when you, when you draw one of those tags. I mean, it's once-in-a-lifetime hunt for us probably. And right. we probably spent a total with scouting and hunting we probably spent a total of probably two months up there i mean we hunted the entire 30-day season and then stayed afterwards because we were so devastated that we had to leave but it was an amazing hunt did you hear that bob are you listening (laughs) yeah bob Bob loves a a six-week hunt yeah yeah. that's, that's what it's all about well, on a side note to that, Bob, you that is, to me, that has been one of the keys for me being successful and for anybody, truly. You have to have the time 
to be able to spend the time to scout and to hunt. You can't. It's so, these guys that go on these really expensive five-day hunts were like, you're out of your mind. Five yes. days, you don't even you don't even know the country you're in. It's it's crazy. So, to me, I've been fortunate. You know, working for the airlines, I had an incredibly lucrative schedule. I was able to take every fall. I would take two months, so I'd take a bunch for whitetail, bunch for high country. I'd take a little bit ahead of time so we could backpack in or whatever. So I was lucky because most jobs you can't do that. But and I don't have it that good now, but. Yeah, that makes a huge difference, so I'm with you 100%. Take the time. Yeah, I have buddies, you know, people I work with that'll be like, hey, you know, I want to go and blah, blah, blah. And and, uh, they'll go for a weekend or something and just be like, ah, I didn't see anything. You know, and I take them to the same, you know, places. (laughs) I And I'm like, man, you just, they don't even go back. It's like, you guys, this is all I do. You know, you got to spend a little bit of time at it. And, yeah, I, I try to not go anywhere for less than two weeks at a time just because... I feel like if you only have even 10 days after the first five or six, you're just getting kind of in the groove and then you're, then you start to panic cause you got to go home in a few days. So that's exactly right. Yeah. That is exactly right. It having that time makes all the difference. Plus if, I mean, we're out there to enjoy it. It makes us all sane, those of us that do it. So you have to, you got to make the time somehow to be able to enjoy it and relax and get to know the country and know what the animals are doing there and all that. Yeah, for sure. And any time any time that you're hunting in a hurry, you're not hunting very effectively, you know. The the patience part yep. is very important, especially with these wood bows. Yeah, and you're missing you're missing so much. I mean, really and truly just you're out there to savor every second. And so if you're in a hurry and you're just running around and you're just blowing animals out, it's, to me, and I know Gary's the same way, it's just you're missing the point. So but can you give us the Can you give us the juicy details of, of this hunt? It sounds like it was a lengthy one, and I imagine there were some trials and tribulations. Yeah, there were. There were. It's... um. It's probably one of the most memorable hunts. Just the country is so different from us. I mean, it's high desert country, mountains. There's you get up into the Ponderosas, but there's also the sage, and it's you know we did everything from spot and stock to just ambushing them to water holes. You name it. It's so different from what we're accustomed to hunting. So it was really unique, and we saw so many elk. And like I said, within a within a week, we were like, "Oh yeah, that that's just a little 300." <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for those those giant ones, and it wasn't. You know, people talk about this particular area a lot, and they'll be like, "Oh, 400 this, 400 that." Well, no, that's not the case. We saw one bull in 30 days, plus another month of scouting that we might have said would go 400. So it's not, there's not 400-inch bulls around every corner, but there's lots of good quality bulls. And it's just, to be able to see that many, you just aren't going to do that in an over-the-counter public unit. You might see once in 10 years a 300-plus. So it was unique from that perspective, and we just ate it up. We had more fun up there. Gary had his heart set on a 350 bull. 
I was just like, God, just take a nice bowl of any sort. I wasn't, I was hoping 300 plus, and that was all I cared, you know, just because it is such, you know, you're not going back, so you, you kind of do set your sights a little higher, but, um, yeah, we, I don't know, I ended up shooting that bull that I took off a water hole out of just some sagebrush that I'd piled up and made a perfect shot on him, and he went down in sight, and I was very grateful because I had already blown it on a 360, shot right over his back at point-blank range and wanted to just crawl into a hole and never come out. So mm. it hurts, but I thought, well, you didn't deserve it because you blew it, and I'm a pretty good shot. It just, you know, at that moment in time, I I didn't get it together. So, And Gary waited and waited, and he passed so many bulls up and we've got some incredible footage well you guys saw some of it up there but it's uh he passed on a lot of bulls and finally ended up shooting one that did i think he grossed like 353 and i forget what his final was but uh, really beautiful bull and then we were sad because we were done and we we didn't want to go home so we got all the meat taken care of and we went back up and just hung out and walked the country and just enjoyed it, but it was it was pretty incredible. I don't think we'll experience the likes of that again. Oh, that sounds uh, sounds super special for sure. Yeah, so you hear uh, other people they they go on those hunts and just like we've been talking about, they'll they'll be like, well, I you know I've got seven days and you know they'll go up and shoot a two fifty bull and then it's over and they'll never hunt it again. And they could have taken that bull anywhere. It's but everybody's different, you know, it's whatever's going on in your life at that time. But for us, we wanted to make the most of it. So, um, I guess, are you uh, applying for the desert bighorn and the moose tags? I've been applying for moose for over 20 years. I think we're at like 24 or something like that, both Gary and I. Never drawn, neither one of us, um, maybe someday. He's putting in for desert. I am not. I'm still putting in for bighorn because I'd like to hunt them again before I get too old and slow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still hoping, but it's where we're at, back to the sheep deal. When I hunted them here, we had an incredible population of sheep. They were doing amazing, and there were lots of rams. And now... If I were to take a guess, I'd say we've got a third of the population. And they don't really know what's happening here. They're not sure if there is disease or if it was over-harvesting because they let out a lot of rifle tags. But they don't, they're not sure. So I don't know. I keep putting in, and I'm not sure that I want to hunt this unit again. We'll see. What What a... What bow are you shooting now, and uh, and how has that you know changed? Uh, well, I still kind of rotate, so it depends on the whim of the moment. I um, haven't been shooting my recurves as much. I've got a few different ones, but uh, my fallback favorite favorite bow is the Black Canyon Takedown Longbow. It's fifty-five at twenty-eight. That is my that's my fallback bow. I just it's like such a sweet bow to shoot and I generally have been picking it up most for most hunts in the last few years um two or three years ago I was hunting with my self bow um, that I made 
I actually made one. It's my only one, but came out beautiful, and I hunted whitetail with it, and I've hunted... Oh, Osage? Something. Yep, Osage, yep. Nice. Haven't got an elk with it. That's something for future challenges, but uh, yeah, this year, like, for whitetail and for mule deer, we hunted mule deer and elk up high. Didn't get anything up high, but uh, I took that, that takedown longbow, and uh, I think Gary mentioned when we went hunting in Kansas where our kids are at we uh I ended up going out one evening after I'd been hunting the stands hadn't really seen much it was deer population's definitely gone down and the big bucks are down in Kansas it's things are things are changing everywhere and uh we like to eat them so I would be happy with a big fat doe and wasn't hadn't had a shot of doe so I went out one afternoon, which I don't normally hunt in the evening, I think it's usually a losing battle. It's If you do get something, it's hard to track it, and you get the chance of losing it in the thick stuff. So, But I thought, well, what the heck, Gary had gone off to hunt somewhere else, and so I just went out and decided this was the year I was going to shoot something with a stone point. I've had them in my quiver for years in Kansas. It's legal, but I always chickened out. I just... I'm just worried because I know that, you know, I'm only putting 40-some pounds of energy into that bow, and I'm always worried about penetration, and I'm worried about blood trail. And so I always chicken out. And just this year I was like, nope, by God, I'm going to do it. I know that this the Indians did it for thousands of years. It is absolutely doable. And so I went out that afternoon, and I just busted through all the thick stuff, and I found a spot where I could see some trails that were kind of coming through, and I thought, well, I'll just just kind of make a little little stand here and I just kind of got back into some cedars and broke a few branches and within five minutes here came a doe and I was so excited because I thought oh that's perfect I would love to have a doe but what I didn't know is she had her fawn with her and what stepped out first was this fawn and I almost started laughing because it was like the smallest fawn I've ever seen <laughs> he barely he could just see his back over the weeds it made me laugh he was so tiny I thought it was a joke so I was, oh, I can't shoot him. You know, he's just a little guy. But I thought maybe if Mama comes out, but she took two steps and she busted me so fast, and she was out of there. So then I'm like, oh, dang it, you know, I thought I was kind of camoed in. And I stood there and another five minutes, and I see, well, I heard first, and then I could look through the cedars and I could see there's antlers coming, and I didn't care what size. I'm not. I want the meat. And <laughs> this little buck comes walking by, and he never picked me up and he was broadside and I drew that stone point back and just pegged him and he took off with that typical death run that they do and turned a corner hard around me and I went to track him and he went like 50 yards it was amazing wow that's so cool was that with your self bow also no, I was shooting that longbow. See, that's the thing. I got to put this <laughs> yeah. together now. I've got to do the cell right? bow and the stone point. <laughs> right. But that goes back to I'm always like my cell bow. I've never put it on a scale, but I'm guessing it's you know low fifty pound plus at twenty eight or whatever. But I you know what, no. What's your draw? I would. I mean, realistically, on a good day, I'm like Gary. It's like, well, is it a good day or a bad day? I would say probably about 25. Okay. 20, 25 and a half, somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. Depends on if you make it to anchor or not. Copy. <laughs> 
But yeah, so you, you someday, guys, uh, you guys kind of grip, grip it, grip it, rip it. Yeah. Well, he's worse than me. I'm actually a little bit better at hitting anchor. He, um, he's definitely a snap shooter, which I try not to be. So Connie, um, sounds like you were raised pretty, uh, pretty outdoors, but your family didn't hunt. You know, I know James and I both have daughters and, and you know, all the guys kind of, that's, that's their dream to get their wives to get out there. Like, I mean, what, what kind of gave you that drive that you think, you know, for, for us guys out there raising some girls, it, it's, um, it seems like it's just such a different world. You know, I'm, I obviously try to raise my daughter as a tomboy, <laughs> but yeah. then, but then like all the shows they watch, then, you know, like there's little princess this and princess that. And <laughs> next thing you know, like I'm dealing with something right now. She's three, you know, I take her all over and, and she's afraid of bugs. I'm like, how did you get afraid of bugs? Like any little gnat flying around, she just freaks out. Like, and uh, I know a boy wouldn't do that. Like, why are you afraid of bugs right now? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what can we do as yeah. dads? Or what do you think was like a maybe something that really helped you when you were young, you know? Well, I, th- I think there's some genetic hardwiring that's very hard to overcome. Um <sighs> I think it's really funny because you see little toddlers, and I, I didn't have my own kids. I just have my stepkids. But you look at little ones, and there there is a genetic predisposition for boys and girls for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing when you you see a 14-month-old little girl grab their mommy's purse and, you know, walk around with it on their shoulder. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yes. How does this happen? <laughs> yes. I'm always like, no, no, no. Stay away from that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I go back to the same thing that Gary has always said, and it's really true. You can't push it on someone, and you shouldn't push it on someone. And I I do know of a few cases of friends that have pushed their wives pretty hard, and in one case, he is a phenomenal traditional hunter and she no longer wants anything to do with it. So if there's not a natural interest, you just can't, I mean, you can't push it. And that's, what's hard. It's, you want them to be interested and you want them to go with you, but unless they truly want to, it's a losing battle and you just, they'll never want to do it. Yeah, that's for sure. I can definitely see, see her mom's parts in her right now i'm like dang it but uh i I still got hope she still loves getting out there i just gotta watch out for the bugs for right now i guess yeah it's well hard i don't know i gary's always marveled at the fact that i'm the one that doesn't want to leave the backcountry and i'm the one that set my heels in Alaska after three and a half weeks in the tundra, and I'm like, I don't want to go. I don't want to fly out. And the pilot's like, you don't have a choice. <laughs> this is the last push plane out. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, so, is, this is amazing. I mean, that's why I think everybody is so, like, when you came to the TAO, all the guys are just, like, looking at their wives going, what, what what's going on here? Like, <laughs> there's a unicorn, and she's talking to us. Like, what happened to you guys? Like, they're all sitting there like, when are you going to be home? You've only been gone for two weeks. You know, we're all like, this this exists. Like, what, what yeah. the heck is going on? How do we make this happen? <laughs> yeah, well, and and also, like, you hear some women that hunt, but their husbands hold their hand over to the stand, and then they tell them everything they need to know. 
I mean, they're not just pushing through the brush and making a ground blind for themselves and hunkering down. And um, it's, I think it's a, it seems like a big difference, you know, talking with you. I mean, you're definitely going out and, and making it happen for yourself. I mean, I know you have the influence of Gary, but um, you can tell that there's a, a, a one, two. Yeah, there it's, I don't know. That's why I think I told you, James, it's like, all these years, the reason we've gotten opportunities to go to places and talk to clubs and do all this is I am a walking anomaly. Not that I'm the only one, but there aren't a lot of us. There's a few, but it's just got to be something in your soul where you want to do it and you you want to be out there busting your tail and carrying a 100-pound pack and making yourself into a human noodle and burning your lungs and it's just it's something there are women that want to do it, but there's not a lot of them. And so I guess what you do like for kiddos and wives, if they're interested at all, if they'll even go shoot with you, that's a start. If they want to just maybe tree stand hunt, that's a start. You know, it's, it's baby steps or if they want to go fishing with you or they want to go backpacking with you, those are all, I mean, at least it's something outdoors and it's good for the soul and they just may not, you just may not want to be diehard bow hunters. It, it's tough, you know. There's a lot of guys that don't want to. We've had, we've had really good friends who completely dropped out of it because they just flat said, "It's too hard. Yeah. I don't want to do it." And so it it's hard. You're not going to like this one, Bob. But so how, how did you uh, how did you feel about bugs when you were a little girl, Connie? I liked bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I've told you I was a terrible tomboy. I was the worst. My mom, I grew up riding horses before I could walk. I would come in the house. I wouldn't, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. I don't know how my parents didn't just kill me. I wouldn't take a bath. I wouldn't wash my hair. I would come in covered with horse hair. I was out in the mud all day long. I was a mess, and that's the way I liked it. So, But now it's funny because I went through the girly stuff. I mean, I, I like girly things. I like perfume. I like makeup. I like nice clothes. I like cute boots. I like all those things. But when it's time to go hunting or fishing, I could give two craps less. I am going to go out and do my thing, and I don't need any makeup, and I don't need any diamond earrings, and I don't need to paint my nails. I don't do that anyway, but it's, you know, it's... (laughs) I do like some of the girly things, but I'm just... I guess I still have the tomboy roots. So what about like the the actual killing? Was that was that tough in the beginning? Did you have to desensitize yourself to that? Like how did 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 you when you were like younger? I know like as little boys, we're out. Most little boys are BB gun hunting birds from natural, like from the get go. Um, you know, talk us through through how that uh, evolution went for you, and how you felt about killing from a young age uh, when you weren't realizing you were hunting; you were just being a tomboy to to actually getting out there with the tag in your pocket. Yeah, it was. That definitely was a. It was something I didn't honestly know if I could do when I started shooting a bow. I didn't know if I could shoot something. I mean, I never had. Ever. So, and I grew up, you know, I went through the phase when I was little where I remember being mad at my uncle because he had shot some ducks and he brought our family some duck meat. 
and I remember being so mad at him that he would shoot those beautiful ducks. But then I was so thrilled that my dad made me an Indian headdress with duck wings on it. I was like, so then it was okay, because I had that. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, um, Gary wasn't sure, I mean, neither one of us, and like I said, I when I look back, that antelope doe was my first animal with bow, and I didn't know up until the point where I hit her if I could even do it, but when when she was there in front of me and it was a good chance and I drew back and it, I hit her and then she went down so fast that I, I didn't feel like she suffered, and then I, for that was it. It clicked. It never, I never looked back about it, I guess, you know, all of a sudden I realized, and for me, I have to say, a big part of bow hunting for me is the meat, the food. I want that food. I love to cook. I love wild game. So that was a huge motivating thing, and it was funny when we when we processed that antelope, every single package I wrote out, every little detail, I'm like, this is Connie's first antelope doe from this date, <laughs> You know, and so the whole freezer had my little section that I contributed, and and so I was pretty proud of that. And that's that's a big motivating factor for me. Yeah, that's huge. If, if you're going to be a meat eater, then you, I don't care where you get your meat. There's blood on your hands. I don't care if you buy it at the store. It doesn't matter. So for me, I'd rather be connected to it because it's you should know you should know the cost of your life you know that other animals are dying so that we can live and you it's good to be connected and know that circle of life i guess yeah the 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 guys that send their uh animals to the butcher i never quite grasped it because every time i open a package it just means so much because not only did i kill it and pack it out, but then I also prepared it and got it into that package. And so when I open that package, I know exactly what each one, I open it up, there's no surprises. And it's like, yep, that was that piece that I put in there. And yep. it just means so much, so much more. Yep. And it it's funny, I, I've gotten less, I, when I worked for the airlines, I would talk to my crew members about, hunting because they would always you know you get talking to and there's so many there's so many employees at an airline that you took me a year to see the same person twice when I started flying so I used to always be talking to new people about it and I was always trying to you know portray the hunter side and you know trying to get them at least interested or at least off the anti-stance and it's funny over the years and my life has changed, obviously, but I anymore, I don't do as much of that. I am pretty private about my life. And it's funny how I think in youth you think that you can change people's mind, but the reality is you just almost have to just do it through example. And if they're interested at all, they'll watch your movements and they'll see what you do and you're attitude and your you know it's it's funny how i think about that a lot how i've changed along with how people how times have changed you know yeah I right think, i think I there is I, a i don't know if that makes sense yeah but it, for it, sure it, i mean a lot of people somebody preaching to them you know is 
is definitely not as effective as, uh, like you said, leading by example, you know, not being yeah, for sure. It gets to me, I don't know, to me, bow hunting is such a, it's such an emotionally intense personal thing that I almost, a lot of times, unless it's someone like you guys or, or the people that are going to listen to this or people that are involved in it that know those feelings, it's almost like I can't adequately share it, so I don't want to. Yeah. Funny. I don't, I've gotten a lot more private about our hunting. I just, I feel like just holding it close to my heart and, you know, just going on about our life and doing our thing. And if, if people are interested, of course, I will help in any way, but I've kind of stepped back from trying to talk to people about it. And just, I don't know, some people are better at that than others, I guess. Anyway. Yeah, so ha- anyway, having these uh, girls and, and not having sons, I think we we have uh, some you know dreams and and hopes of getting them out there in the woods with us. And I think all you can do is like you know me and Bob do is pack them out and show them and and teach them. Um, but it kind of there's always a story that I reflect on, and uh, my sister in law. She doesn't bow hunt. She's a rifle hunter. But, I mean, she is a hunting fool. I mean, man, she's a successful every year. She gets her elk, her deer. She's just – and she hunts wilderness and puts heavy packs on. I mean, she's the real deal. Yeah. And I, I talked to her dad, who's, you know, a, a hunting fool, and he's uh was a houndsman and before they outlawed hound hunting here in Oregon and – his wife said that their marriage was saved by the outlaw of hound hunting because he never came home. So he's an outdoorsman and he's got two daughters. And I asked him, I said, well, how did you get Jenny into hunting? And, you know, how did that work? And he said, well, everyone thought that Rissa, my other daughter, was going to be my hunter because she was my outdoorsy tomboy. And Jenny was more of a girly girl. And I said, well, you know, how did that transition happen? He goes, well, Jenny liked to kill stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you never know, right? You just never know. We we have five grandkids, and there's three boys and two girls. And, yeah, you always kind of hope the girls will be interested. But at this point, they're not interested in bow hunting. Um but our grandson Saxton, one of them, and he had to because Saxton. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> so Saxton is diehard outdoors kid. He's been bow hunting because he can out there. It's legal in Kansas. He's a little. I think this year he could hunt Colorado. But he um, he's so into it. And last year we were so hopeful because I shot that buck. My stepson Derek shot a buck. Gary shot a, what did he shoot? Was it, I think he shot a doe. And Saxton had gotten so close, and it was funny because we were standing there with my buck dressing it out, and Saxton comes in, he's getting, he's kind of kicking rocks. I'm like, what's going on, bud? And he's like, well, I'm the only one who didn't get a deer yet. <laughs> and I thought, well, that would have been something. We would have had three generations of Renfro's with a deer. That would have been really something. But 
He's at least we have one. And then it's funny, you know, you're talking about Jenny. Ember is our oldest grandchild, and she, in the last couple of years, decided she wanted to go rifle hunting out there for whitetail. And the first year, Derek sat right there with her, and she ended up taking a really nice buck, made a great shot on it, and she was so proud of herself, and we never expected her to want to hunt. I mean, she is a girly girl. And this past year, after we had come home, rifle season opened up, and Derek said he had her out there, and they were sitting together, and nothing was happening, and he stepped away to go, you, you know, use a tree. And uh, he, hears the, he hears the gun go off, and he's freaking out because, you know, she's a young lady, and he's like, what is happening? And he takes off running, and he hears a gun go off again. And now he's dying a million deaths, and he gets back over there. Well, she shot another buck, and she goes, yeah. She said, I missed him the first shot he was running. And then he, the buck stopped, and she shot again and got him. I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> I mean, for, for a 13-year-old to just take it upon herself that that's her shot, and she took it, and I'm like, wow. That's, that's awesome. That's impressive. Yep. Yeah, that is impressive. My oldest daughter, uh, she's uh, Alexa. She's 13. She's won uh, our state uh, traditional archery competition a couple times. She's in love with shooting. She loves the outdoors. Um, she's a, She knows everything about animals. Um, she's, she's just a gem, um, kind of an old soul. And, and I think she will... Uh, do some hunting. I mean, she's goes with me quite a bit, uh, but she does. She captures bugs to save them and let them free. <laughs> and she, she, you know, she's she's got this, uh, um, you know, this kind of mentality. Where Aubrey, my middle child, she's a girly girl through and through. Pink everything, uh, dresses, uh, tries to sneak makeup. Um, <laughs> She says she's a city girl living in the country, but oh, no. she likes. But she likes to smash bugs. She's competitive, oh. and um, if we go with uh, uh, Jenny's dad's theory, I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up being my hunting partner. Yeah, you never know. You just don't know. But you just have to let them make those choices and try. You know, you've shown them, and you you keep them doing whatever they'll do with you but in the end it's going to come down to hey dad i want to hunt this year you know it's they have to decide i mean i i had to beg gary and i was a grown-up i was like i want a bow dang it get me a bow and he was like no absolutely not I'm like yes i want a bow i want to shoot you know so it just maybe maybe guys interest, maybe guys are trying too hard to get their wives in it we're being too nice just need to yeah. tell them no, and then they'll be like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Reverse psychology; it works every time, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, and and I think also um, going back to that, you know, with my girls, uh, Aubrey also she she's really tough. Like she's physically super strong, and she can take cold better, wet better. Uh, so I think that that could you know correlate over to. To the tough times, and so it's going to be interesting raising them up because I'd like all three of them to spend the time in the field and hopefully grow some kind of passion for hunting, even if it's just rifle hunting or bow hunting or whatever it is. Um, but it is interesting raising them because they're all three so different, and what people from the outside looking in see 
they have different perspectives than I have on my time with them in, in the outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. There's no magic bullet and you're doing to me in my head and I've not raised kids. I mean, I didn't get the stepkids till they were half grown, but in to my way of thinking, you're doing everything you can to give them that love of the outdoors, if nothing else. And if it turns into a passion for more, great. If it doesn't, you always have that, and they won't forget it. That's the thing. A lot of these kids that we see at our traditional shoot, they're so fired up, and they love it, and they come and shoot their little bows, and they have a great time. And then, you know how life is. They turn into older teenagers, and then they're off at college, and they don't have time for any of that. But what happens most of the time is they finally get established, they get married, they have a life in their 30s, they come back to it because they remember it and they have so many good memories and so even if it doesn't happen when they're young there may come a day when they're a little bit older where they come back to it and say dad i really want to i really want to try this you know can we go hunt this year and i it opens a lot of doors when that love's already instilled in them yeah yeah that makes sense laying down that foundation and like you said sometimes it just takes time and maturity and and i've seen that um, you know, in, in other uh, instances, for sure. I mean, I didn't start hunting till I was 25, so um, I think uh, we've got hope, Bob. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not the only one that was a late starter, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was hard. That, to me, when you don't grow up hunting, it, it's, there is a lot to learn, and it's a tough road. And yeah. There were a lot of times where I thought, I'll never figure this out. Because it's physically demanding, it's mentally demanding, and it's emotionally demanding. And you somehow, yeah, you got to, that will has to be there where you're like, I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep shooting. And especially when you're going traditional archery, I mean, it doesn't get much harder than that. So, No, for sure. Yeah, I, I wasn't raised in a hunting family like you, and I definitely grew up making forts and making little bow and arrows and uh, always wanted to be the Indian and that's that, right. that's... That, that that type of thing um but it my mom married a hunter um later in life and i started getting into their freezer and stealing all their mule deer and elk steaks and antelope steaks and uh they kind of were like hey you need to get your own and that's kind of how i got the start was just really it was the meat i wanted i loved i fell in love with the meat and then it was pretty quick and easy to fall in love with the adventure See, that's very similar to me. I mean, I once I got the taste for wild game, good wild game that had been cared for properly and all those things. I had some pretty nasty stuff that people would give my dad and it wasn't even edible. And, he, you know, consequently, most of my family didn't like wild game. But when you finally taste the real deal, yeah, it's like it's eye opening. It's so incredibly good. And so, yeah, I, you and I are very similar that way. I, I, was, yeah. I am still so motivated by meat. Oh I, yeah! Don't get me wrong. I'd love to shoot a nice trophy class animal, but if it comes down to meat or a trophy, I'll probably in the meat's a sure thing. I'll take the meat. I had a I had a I had a three twenty bull raking a tree at about thirty or forty yards coming my way, and when the cow stepped into three yards, well, she came <laughs> she's came she came home with me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, it was the a sure no, thing. So yeah, got some good steaks in the freezer. I'm totally with you. One in the hand is better than two in the bush every day. 
Um, but yeah, and also like that quality. I I was uh, exposed to hunting by my stepdad, who was like taking care of the meat was top priority and getting it uh, wiped down and cleaned and aged and butchered and 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 that definitely makes a huge difference. How you take care of it once it hits the ground is a uh, game changer. Yeah, because how many times have you heard? Oh, antelope is inedible. Antelope and mountain lion are my two absolute favorites. For sure. And antelope, it takes, what, an hour and you've ruined it. I mean, it can be so fast because it's typically so hot. And I have had antelope that you could not eat. It was the most disgusting thing I'd ever tried. And then when I finally took that first antelope, it was so incredibly good. And it's, yeah, it's just how you take care of that meat. We tell people that all the time because we hear... So many people talk about how horrible antelope is, and I bet you that most of the time it's because they haven't taken care of it. Yeah, because I haven't. I've only had antelope killed by my mom and uh, my stepdad, who's now passed, and it was phenomenal every single time. So yep. yeah, I I love antelope. I mean, I really do. I, I actually had an antelope, my only antelope tag last year, and I hunted my tail off, and I got one shot, and he ducked the string. So I've yet to uh, <laughs> let to get my hands on my own yet, but one of these days. Oh uh, well, I have a quick antelope story. This one, it, we haven't been able to draw many tags here for where we want to hunt. I should put that caveat in there, but where we like to hunt, it's extremely remote. There's no roads. There's no people. There's nobody. But nowadays, there's also no antelope. So for years, we were able That's to a hunt problem. there. Yeah, it is a problem. So we finally drew, it's probably been, I want to say five years ago. I don't know. I'd have to look. But it's been a few years since we were able to finally draw a tag again. And it was, we always love it up there. It's high desert. It's incredible. We just, it's our country. We just love it. And we were not seeing hardly any antelope, which is really depressing and sad to see. But we found a little water hole that had a little bit of water in it and proceeded to try to hunt. And Gary took off. He gets he gets antsy. Like he, I have the patience of a rock. He does not. So I was like, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to hunt. There's bound to be something come through. They know there's a few bucks in the area. And so I sat there, and it was... It's awful. You know how it is. This was, you can't do pit blinds anymore. They're against the law. So it's 120 degrees in there. I'm dying. It's a pop-up, and we've tried to camo it in, and I'm just, I literally stripped down to almost nothing because I'm ready to melt. And I sat in there day after day. I'd sit in there 12 hours, and finally, here comes my chance. This buck's coming. He's not a big buck, but he's really pretty, and he's coming. And he's going to, he's just going to, it's going to be perfect. Well, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes a coyote. And he runs that buck off, and I just laid my head in the dirt. I wanted to cry. I've been there for 10 days, hunting 12 hours a day in 120 degrees. I was dying. And I just sat there, and I was so discouraged. But I had seen such incredible things. I mean, I had a, I had a golden eagle come in and then fly right by me and look at me in the blind. I mean, I'd seen some amazing things. So it was still fun. But I'm sitting there just shaking my head because I can't believe my luck. I finally see a buck, and the coyote comes in. Well, the next thing I know, that buck turned around, and he came right next to my blind. And, I mean, I got him. I was like, so you never know. (laughs) Things change in a heartbeat. 
That's uh, awesome. So, so did you, you got a pretty close shot on him? Yeah, he was really close. He was probably, I don't know, eight yards close. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, and Gary was still gone. I mean, he was a million miles away doing some scouting in the truck, and so I went and tracked the buck down after a while, and, yeah, everything was great. And then, luckily, we we had – it's such open country that he said, well, if you do get one down, he said, you know, put a – white game bag up on this highest little spot here and i'll be able to see it from where he was going so hung a game bag up there because i'm like i need help to get this guy out of here and get him put away so he doesn't spoil and so he came roaring back in the truck and we got him but yeah you never a lot of times i think i started on that tangent a while ago but a lot of times when i feel like it's over and the, the hunt's done something will turn around so now I'm learning in my old age and wisdom that it's not over till it's over and you just you never know. Yeah, for sure. So what is what is uh 2018 look like for you guys? What uh what what's the hopes and plans and uh what do you guys got going on? Probably not a whole heck of a lot. Um I think Gary probably mentioned it, but we're we're in the process of trying to sell our our place and build a house and we didn't really apply for anything except points for the most part, and we'll probably, if we get a hunt at all, it'll be high country mule deer and over-the-counter elk, and be really nice if we could get an elk because we need the meat. But, yeah, we didn't uh, didn't really put in, for, we still put in for moose, so, I mean, if we drew something like that, of course, we would just drop the ball, and I'd probably have to quit my job. But, yeah, if we Last drew a such- tag... That would be something, but you never, you know, chances well, are that you're not going to draw it. Well, I could, uh, I could live the rest of my life with high country mule deer and over-the-counter elk. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep hoping. I have blown more chances on big mule deer. That seems to be my nemesis. So, I want a high country muley. He doesn't have to be giant, but I want a good, respectable buck. And boy, I have blown every chance I've had. I. I'm starting to think that that's going to be the one that's just going to haunt me. No, no, this is your year. Big, big buck for Connie at fourteen thousand. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, nice. But that's awesome. I, so, what could you? Uh, could, this would be a two part to uh, to kind of you know phase this out. Um, what advice do you have if we happen to have any ladies, uh, young girls listening? Do you have uh, for them getting into bow hunting? And what advice do you have for husbands and fathers for their wives and daughters? <laughs> okay, so for the ladies, I think just be honest with yourself and do what you're comfortable doing and do what you want to do and don't do it to make somebody else happy make yourself happy if you love it go for it find friends that are going to support you family members that are going to support you and this is something i did want to mention since this is kind of about the ladies in bow hunting i have never once been treated poorly by the male bow hunters ever i've had nothing but support and encouragement and words of wisdom and so it breaks my heart when I do hear occasionally from people that they felt like they were discriminated against or, or whatever. That breaks my heart because in all these years, I have never felt that from people I know, ever. So I think 
the bow hunting community will welcome any ladies with open arms, period. The only time I've ever gotten funny comments was people I didn't know, and it just made me shake my head and laugh because people can be idiots. That's, you know, it happens. So I don't think, I just don't want ladies to think that they wouldn't be welcome or they wouldn't receive support from especially traditional archery. There's not a better group of people. Absolutely. So yeah, that's probably that's probably for the ladies, and then for the for the husbands and you know, or fathers, or do what you're doing. You you've said it. I mean, you're opening that door for them, and if they are interested, they'll step through it, and they'll and they may, like I said, they may not do it till they're older, but you've instilled that love in them, and that's that's the key. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that just because I, I see my my uh, buddies that have sons and they're getting tags at 12 years old and, you know, and they're going out and killing stuff right away. And, you know, with my daughter, she's 13. I wanted to get her a, a, a rifle tag last year and she just wasn't ready and pushing her. She wants to go with me hunting. She She's... Uh, you know, been with uh, um, my mom and watched her shoot an animal. She's she likes um, cutting up the meat and gutting the animal, but she's just not. You know, when she's ready, she's going to let me know. And I think forcing them or pushing them into it, and I mean, who cares if she isn't ready? You know, maybe she'll be ready at sixteen or eighteen or twenty six. But I th- I think that you have to kind of feel that out and. Um, let them do it when when they're ready. Right. No, but you're exactly right. I just you open those doors and you share it with them. But and some people, you know, on that same vein, I have seen fathers with daughters or husbands with wives who don't want them to be a part of it. They don't want to share it. It's their thing. They want to get away, and that that's tough. If there's an interest there, that's tough. Then you know, but the there are people that are like that, and, you know, everybody's different. But you can't, if you do want to share it with them, you just can't push. You just, you let the opportunities come up, and if if they want to participate or they express an interest, then great. But, yeah, like I said before, I've seen people that were pushed into it, and now they want zero to do with it. They won't even pick up a bow, not even to shoot for fun, and that's really sad. Well, awesome. We really appreciate um, your time. It was uh, the pleasure was definitely all ours having you on. Um, hopefully, uh, we do have some fathers that are going to share this with their daughters or s- some wives listening. I think you're an inspiration to uh, all, especially the the female hunting community. So, thank you. Once again, we'd like to thank the listeners. We're doing a bow giveaway. Go to Byland Podcast on iTunes and leave Emery a review. He has been so gracious to give away his Bear Montana 50-pound right-handed longbow. Um, don't, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes also, and we will put you in for the bow giveaway. Also, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. Google Play. Check us out on Instagram, 
keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. <laughs>